Today I am a tad excited to be speaking to the journalist, author of several books, musician and reverend Richard Coles, who was one half of the phenomenal pop band The Communards, who achieved global success and three hits in the top ten. He later became a reverend of a local parish in rural Northamptonshire. He keeps one foot in the parish and the other one in a career as a broadcaster with BBC Radio 4 and appearing on TV shows such as Strictly Come Dancing and Celebrity Masterchef. He is the only reverend in the UK and probably the world to have a number one hit. We speak a year on from the death of his civil partner David who died at the age of 42 in December 2019 discussing Richard's extraordinary life, his own grief and how he's doing now. Well, I know now that there is no normal to go back to because the person I was before David died is not a person that that person died with him. It's a different thing now. And also, I don't want to because I love David and life without him, I don't want to get better in a way. I want to learn a way of living with it and I want to live my life and I want it to be you know, rich and rewarding and, and full of other people and stuff. But there's a whole part of me that will be forever mourning David. But he deserved that because I loved him and he loved me and, and that's the most important thing and I don't want to lose any of that. And as ever, I would love if you could rate, review and subscribe to this podcast as it really does help other people to find it. This is a podcast about death to really encourage the conversation about death. And part of the reason I'm doing this is to really encourage people to live a fuller life. And reading your biography really made me see that your life has been colourful and very vibrant. And when you look back on it, does it seem to make sense, your life, or does it Um, all seem a bit bonkers? Well, I think it was Kierkegaard who observed that you can only uh, understand your life by looking backwards, you're too busy living it um, when you're facing forward. So I think that's probably true. So at the time, it just seemed uh, utterly kind of random, one thing after another. But from I'm nearly 60 now, and sort of looking back, I begin to see sort of patterns and contours and everything. Uh, And then moments of decisive change, which I didn't, gosh, I mean, I'd love to lay to claim some credit for it. But actually, I think there were one or two moments in my life when I realised I simply had to make a step. Mm. and uh, and I did and and that was sort of definitive you've also described yourself in your book as having a revolutionary spirit do you think that's reflected in your life choices in a way well I think it's more complicated than that because I think mm. if I'm honest I've got both a radical and a conservative impulse I think I wonder sometimes if it's the the sort of um, I'm a kind of mixture of my parents and that I have the diffidence of one and the drive of another. But I think by instinct, I'm probably quite conservative, small c, but by conviction, I'm probably quite radical, mm. uh, small r. And so those things are a bit at war within me. Um, but that's made for quite a lively uh, experience. Mm. Do you think that becoming a reverend, do you see that as a sort of act of rebellion as well? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? You wouldn't think so. What could be more sort of mildly conformist than unmaverick than a vicar? But actually, if you look at the world as it is now, it's becoming increasingly more radical. You don't have to do anything to be radical. It just becomes more radical because the world moves in another direction. Um, but I think if you do have a feel for 
for radicalism. Christianity is extraordinarily powerful. I mean, it is a belief which requires the overthrow of the status quo, the abandonment of the pursuit of self-interest uh, and self-promotion, mm. <clears throat> however imperfectly, um, and does sort of turn the world upside down, really. So it is a, it is a deeply, a deeply radical thing to do, I think. From an outsider's point of view, it might seem a bit odd to have been in a band and ended up as irreverent. But once you are aware of your story, it's, it does seem to tie in, doesn't it? It's, it? it's almost like you're going back to where you came from, the love of the church and the choir and, and being in that environment at school. I think that's true, that it, I, I have sort of ended up where I began, which is interesting in itself. But I think also, if you look, I've got a, a nephew called Oliver, and when he was about 15, he... Uh, first became aware that I had this sort of interesting backstory and he said Uncle Richard like were you in a band and I said yeah and he said well like a real band and, yeah. and he said is it on YouTube and I said well I suppose so so anyway he looked <laughs> up one of our videos on YouTube and he looked at it nodding along and at the end he said you know it's really funny but even then you can tell there's a vicar struggling to get out <laughs> how old is so, your nephew <laughs> well he's now 17 <laughs> so, but he was dead right I think I mean there was always a vicar waiting to happen. <laughs> so after leaving the communards, this sort of followed by a drug-fueled period in your life and also a lot of your friends started dying from AIDS and this was a very hard time for you. And then you talk in the book about going into the St Albans Church in Holborn and something happened to you. You yeah. sort of had a existential experience, I feel. Yeah. It, it sounded really beautiful the way you described it. And I, I wanted to ask you what had happened. It was one of those decisive moments on which a life hangs, although I don't think I was fully aware of that at the time. But there are moments in life, I think, you'll often find this when you talk to people who've just been bereaved, where everything you're, becomes very intense and very heightened, and you're super conscious, super aware of what's going on around you. And it was one of those occasions. And I, I went into the church, very skeptical, reluctantly i went at the invitation of a friend who thought i ought to try it didn't want to be there um and then i sat at the back feeling uncomfortable looking around me at these strange people doing these strange things dimly remembered some of it from when i was a kid and then in the middle of it there were three ministers at the altar all dressed up in this sort of fantastic drag and there was music and there were smells and there were bells and one of them just held up the big white host the wafer and a bell rang and it was at that moment I just felt something within me break it was like like chains breaking mm. or a dam bursting and I knew that what was in front of me was what I was for and I just knew it in that moment and I went out a believer went in an unbeliever and came out a believer it was that stark so like a, a sort of very spiritual experience, it sounds Yeah, it like. was. It was. certainly wasn't anything I was doing. I mean, I, I would never have, you know, some people find their way to faith through kind of working it out or patience or diligence. I found it out through crashing and burning. I would never have worked it out any other way. And it was only in turmoil that um, I was able, I think, to receive the transmission that God transmits on a certain frequency and you need to tune into it. Mm. And if you're not tuned in, you won't receive. But if you are tuned in, all of a sudden, it's high fi mm. There's something also very 
comforting in churches, isn't there? When you're feeling at a point, you know, I mean, I, I, I go into the cathedral. I live in St Albans and I go in there and I remember the people that have died for me and I like candles for them. And I find it very, very powerful. It's a yeah. really powerful experience. There are, there are things you can only do in churches, temples, synagogues, mosques. You know, their religion, spirituality, faith seems to be such a constant in human experience that even in a place like this, really, where for lots of people it isn't, it isn't part of their experience. Nonetheless, I think what we seek from it is always there. The appetite is always there. And perhaps we seek to satisfy in different ways. Maybe people do that to their satisfaction. I never could. But uh, I think there is, it is, it, often, it answers a need in us that is very deep and profound and I suspect universal. Mm. And we've lost that connection, haven't we? I feel. I think, I think so. I mean, I don't want to be too kind of precious about it, but I, I, I do think that, you know, in every human civilization, in every place, at every time in human history, people have sought to live lives of faith and experience themselves as spiritual beings. And not to do that seems to, to me, to necessarily involve a sort of starvation of something important. I mean, lots of people disagree with me and good luck to them, but that's how it strikes me. And do you think more people will come to the church after this period of lockdown and and COVID-19? I don't know, it's too early to say. I suspect the what's happened to us in this past year will take a while for the uh, the impact of that to be fully felt. Mm. Will it turn people? I think often disruption and challenge and sometimes uh, catastrophe will often lead people to the door of the church or the mosque or the synagogue or the temple with those mm. questions that don't seem to be able to be answered elsewhere but mm. we'll looking for some sort of i don't know answer i guess yeah, i think or, so yeah i think there's i think there are certain kind of questions that will take you to places like that i wanted to go back to when you were a teenager and when you came out as gay and saying that you felt that that was the right thing to do but also then going into this deep depression and attempting to take your own life and ending up in a psychiatric hospital. That's right. Um, why did you attempt to take your own life at that time, do you think? Well, I was 16, 17, and just, uh, I mean, I, I'd known that I was gay from as soon as I was capable of understanding what that meant. Mm. But I grew up in a world at a time when that was not something you would readily admit. Um, it was still criminal in those days. And socially, it would have been, uh, it would have felt suicidal, I think. Mm. And so you internalise all that stuff, and that's not healthy at all. And then I moved away when I was 16 and found a bit of ground I could stand on where I could start to be honest about it, and I was. And it was like, again, it sort of opened a floodgate, I think, and a whole kind of uh, wave of very turbulent emotion kind of burst out and I was completely overwhelmed by it and I began to think what did I think I, I thought that existence was futile mm. and that life would not be worth living or rather the cost of living the 
risk of pain of living would be so great that it wasn't worth the candle. And also, I think I was in a lot of pain, and pain is more or less endurable, depending on you. I have a very low pain threshold, by the way. Um, so if I was ever threatened with torture, it would be utterly unnecessary because I'd tell everybody anything just at the prospect of it. Um, <laughs> and I just found it unendurable. And I thought, so it was a mixture of both of kind of feeling very, very unhappy. And also it was a sort of philosophical thing. Well, thinking this need not be the case if I was simply not to exist, mm. then it would all, uh, it would no longer hurt me. I thought, what about the others? It would hurt if I were to do it. And then I thought, with extraordinary selfishness, well, if I'm not around, then that's not a problem. So I did, I, I stockpiled. I've been seeing a doctor for, um, for depression, for clinical depression, and he prescribed me some meds, including some meds to help me sleep, and I've been stockpiling them. And I took an overdose of those, which I washed down with vodka, Fortunately, not enough to damage myself, mm -hmm. um, but enough to kind of knock me out and enough to make everybody realise that I was really in a bad way. And I got admitted to a psychiatric hospital, St Andrews, Northampton, which is a wonderful place. And that was um, that, that saved my bacon. I was an inpatient there for about three months, I think, and, and got better. And, uh, I mean, I've had, I think anyone who has a tendency to depression, those things... Uh, you never entirely lose it, but I'm much better at handling it now. And I've never been in a, anything like a place where I felt as bad as I did then. Mm. I survived it, you know, and if you survive, you know you can survive. And in a way, it was it was almost like um, giving yourself permission to to be gay and live a life. It was almost like part one and part two, in, in a way. Yes, because I thought, if I'm going to live, then these are the conditions. I'm not going to pretend this. I'm not going to do what others want me to do. I'm going to find my own way. Uh, and that's what happened. Although, again, against my nature, so I'm very conventional, I'm a timid person, really. So the thought of running away to London was rather terrifying. I used to be frightened of going on a dual carriageway when I first got my moped, so I wasn't the most adventurous of souls. <laughs> but I did. I ran away and came to London in 1980, and a new life uh, or a new way of living began. Yeah, and uh, I was listening to, I know this isn't one of your songs, um, Small Town Boy, but that sort of idea of, I mean, it's such, that's such a beautiful song because it's, you know, it's that story of running away and starting a new life, isn't it? And being yeah, being anonymous uh, as well, I guess. Uh, yeah, I think that song is an anthem for anyone who's ever had to run away to a big city to make up a life themselves. You know, there are lots of reasons for doing it. But I think for those of us, uh, like me and Jimmy Somerville, uh, you know, we ran away to London to live the life that we weren't able to live where we'd grown up. Mm. And it was a sort of enormous liberation. But it was also, you know, risky and it was difficult. Um, but like most things worth doing, risk and difficulty are part of the deal, I think. And in a way it paid off, didn't it? Because you met a whole new... You know, your your it felt like your circle really opened, and you've met new people, and then it turned into doing being part of the the communards as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. it did. It was it was transformed my life, and friendships I made then are the sturdiest of my life. And um, it's an interesting one. I think for lots of lots of 
gay people, LGBT people who run away like that. You kind of form almost family bonds with your immediate friends because you need to find, you need to sort of rebuild a life actually, and you do it with other people. So I, you know, I'm in daily contact with um, two or three of the people who I was, I was in daily contact with them, been friends all my life. Also, you know, I was 20. And when you're 20, gosh, when you're 60, you look back to when you're 20 and you think, my goodness, but, um, you know, you're incredibly resilient. You have endless reserves of energy and curiosity. So I've always been a very nosy person and mm. I've always loved the idea of getting kind of stuck in with things. So I just threw myself into new world, new life, new people. And the other thing, I came from a very sort of sheltered, privileged background. I've been to an English public school. I was a chorister. I came from a family that was reasonably privileged. And I found myself suddenly in a commonwealth of people who the only thing we had in common was that we were gay, but that was enough to make us uh, a unit. And they were really different from me. And one of the great lessons in my life, it's a continuing lesson, it's still a lesson now, is just don't assume that people think what you think about things because their life might be unimaginably different from yours and mm. walk walk a mile or two with them before you even attempt to understand the way they see things. Yeah. I just remember reading something about when you entered into the communards, you were kind of like a beacon of hope to the community in a way, and that sort of kept you doing it and gave you confidence to do it and to have that sort of limelight or do you think that was part of it or do you think it was just you know well, yeah part of the course that two things it. were happening one one i think was that it was just really good fun being a, being a successful pop band you know the rewards are enormous and the uh, attention is in, is unending and the uh, you know it does feel like a great vindication who would say no to that um, but also it did feel like a vindication of who we were and what we stood for. We were openly gay, we were out, we were proud, we stood up for the things we believed in. And it was a big fight then, you know, pushing against the barriers of tolerance and inclusion. The newspapers were incredibly hostile to gay people then. The legal system uh, did not grant equality to LGBT people then. So there was a big fight to be had, but, you know, Fighting is a great way of getting out of bed in the morning. Um, takes its toll. You don't always want to be a fighter, or I don't. Mm. Um, but it was, it was a really good fight, and we believed in what we were fighting for, and we stood shoulder to shoulder, and it was, it was really good. Wow. So I wanted to ask you about your partner, David, that died. Is that is that okay? For yeah, of course. That? Okay. Um, and actually, it was only just very recently in December that he died and you you've been very open about talking about how you feel on twitter and in the media and i read somewhere and you mentioned the sort of madness of grief and i wanted to ask you about what what is that madness of grief and grief and what does that feel like and has that lessened over time well i'm a year into it mm. and that's not very long i've discovered so i'm still very early on in these days. And I realise now I've had enough distance between David's death, which was just before Christmas last year, mm. to realise that I was completely mental for quite a lot of that time. Fortunately, I had people around me who were able to look after me and make allowances. But I was completely bananas, I think. And uh, 
you know, when it first happens, you you just have to get through, not even the day, get through the minute, you know, the hour. So you try to stand up and face forward and do what you have to do. But I knew I was mad because I remember the day after he died, I went to the supermarket because I had to get bread and milk, you know, hadn't been home. So I went into the co-op at Thrapston and I came out with three types of Parmesan. <laughs> I have no idea what I was doing at that shop. But anyway, three types of Parmesan I came out with. So I had to go back in and do my proper shopping. <laughs> and then I was, um, I couldn't stop crying. And I would drive sometimes and realise I had no recollection of how I got to where I was going. I hope I wasn't unsafe driver. I mean, no dents in the car that I'd noticed, but... It's a very, uh, you know, you are, I think most of the time we like to think we're reasonably in control of our lives, that we're independent people. But then sometimes something will happen and you realise that um, you're not always. Uh, and it was really tough. Um, mm. And it still is tough. And uh, I know it's, a, well, I know now that there is no, normal to go back to because the person I was before David died is not a person that per, that person died with him it's a different thing now mm. um and also I don't want to because I love David and life without him I don't want to I don't want to get better in a way I want to learn a way of living with it and I want to live my life and I want it to be you know rich and rewarding and and full of other people and stuff. But there's a whole part of me that will be forever mourning David. But he deserved that because I loved him and he loved me. And and that's the most important thing. And I don't want to lose any of that. Mm, that's very beautiful. And I've heard um, a lot. I mean, you know, there's a... I don't know if you've read the book Grief Works by Julia Sam, Samuel. Oh, yeah, uh, I've seen it. I haven't read yeah, it. Yeah, and... She she says, you know, the uh, amount of loss is equal to the amount of love. Yeah. So it's very much what you're saying. Um, and you, I guess blocking out the grief is blocking out the memory of that person and how you felt about him. That's an odd thing. Is it one of the... Because I've, I've spent a lot of my time around people who had just been bereaved because of my, my job. So I've seen it in other people. Of course, it's completely diff different when it happens to you. Mm. But one of the things... I, I had seen in other people and not really understood until it happened to me was that fear of the person you have lost fading. And um, a couple of months after David died, his brother, who I love very much, came down uh, because David had a Morris Minor, which he loved. And I gave it to David's father, who uh, started off as a mechanic on Morris Minors. And I wanted him to have something of David. And I'm such a hopeless driver, there was no point in me having it. <laughs> so Mark came down to collect it, to take it back up to uh, Chorley, where, where David's family comes from. And uh, it would never make it on its own. So he brought a mate and they loaded it on a on a low loader and took it away. And as it departed, I just for the first time felt that fear that I was, that David would just fade a little bit and I'd forget what he looked like or what he sounded like or what he smelled like or how he made me feel. Um, and that was I hadn't I'd never felt that before no it's funny isn't it and it, it it's a material thing you know a car but you realise how important those objects are and what they meant to that person when they were alive and I guess yeah. it's, you know it's part of them isn't it 
the it's part of their life, out. isn't it? The clear out. David was an incredible, he loved stuff. And every square foot of the vicarage was full of stuff often multiples of stuff. For example, three sets of bagpipes, three Irish harps, <laughs> three pianos, three violins. He just, and then lots of stuff. And then I, after a while I realised I didn't want to be like Miss Havisham, surrounded by the effects of someone who's no longer living. So with the help of some friends uh, who were fantastic, um, we had a big clear up and a clear out. God, it was hard, you know, oh, to yeah. let go of the stuff, even though I had to let go of the stuff and I knew I did. And I still now kind of look for something of his that's not there anymore because it's gone. Most of it went to, you know, good homes elsewhere. Some of it went to, to a skip. Hmm. Uh, and I think I skipped his toy, <coughs> toy rabbit from when he was a little boy. By accident or... Yeah, like Ralphie oh. the rabbit. Oh. And I know it's dark, but I, I just think Ralphie the rabbit is lying in some landfill site somewhere unknown, and something about that's quite difficult. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I can really feel, I can really feel your emotion actually as you're talking about it. You know, yeah. It's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes I'm angry with David for not having given me do you notice that he was going to die? So I could have just fixed some things that I wasn't able to fix or not done some things which I did do. If it only he'd been thoughtful enough to tell me when he was going to die, then I could have perhaps made better arrangements. But there's nothing you can do about it. There's a little bit of time to, to say goodbye, but it's still a shock. But yeah. when someone dies suddenly, that's like you're saying, it's just, it's taken away, isn't it? And you haven't got time to say those goodbyes or say those things. Yeah, I spoke to a friend a while ago, and and I was saying, talking about this, and he said, but you knew David was going to die. And I said, yeah, I knew he was going to die. But there's a difference between knowing someone's going to die and then them dying. So, yeah. And also not I, knowing, you know, it's like me and my husband always talk about it. I always say to him, it's better if I die first because I'll cope better. You won't. And he's like, uh, okay, but I mean, I, I mean it. And it's my love for him in a way yeah. that he dies before me. Yeah. Well, I'm even more annoyed with David about that because David was 15 years younger than me and started out as a nurse. So I was thinking, hooray, that's my old age taken care of. <laughs> I know he's going to be doing my intimate care when I need it. But, um, but it, annoyingly, he died before me. So... That wasn't part of the plan, actually. No. But we did have... The, the other thing that I think surprised me with its intensity was how much your future dies with the person. So, you know, we had our plans and uh, I was going to carry on for a bit longer and then I was going to step down and David was going to step up and do more his thing. We were going to... We were, uh, we were looking for a little house in Scotland, which we love. And, and all of a sudden that all went. And so... My house hunting in Scotland came to an end because without David, um, I didn't, I didn't, that plan didn't work anymore. So anyway, I'm, a year on, I've just got the framework of a new plan. And so that's sort of beginning to fall into place. But it's very shocking, that thing, when you do lose the person with whom you were expecting to spend the rest of your life, that it takes 
the future with you. So you look forwards. And I've always liked to have this idea of, you know, I know what's just ahead so I can see where I'm going. And all of a sudden there was there was nothing there. And that I'd never experienced that before. And it was really quite difficult. Hmm. And what does that what does that future look like now then? Well again off to the Bahamas. <laughs> no. Um... More from Richard in a moment. Something that helped Richard was the charity Widowed and Young, which offers peer-to-peer emotional and practical support to people aged 50 or under whose partner has died. To find out more or to donate to support the valuable work they are doing, please visit widowedandyoung.org.uk. I'll also put the links in the show notes. Now back to Richard. One of my oldest friends, the, one of the people who I formed those very close relationships with mm. when I was first in London. Um, I have, I'm going to be moving into a house uh, in the same village as her, which is when I retire, which is a couple of years away yet, but I'm going to be moving into the same village as her, which is actually as far, as far away from Scotland as you can get. It's on the south coast. Oh, wow. Um, but she and I, we've known each other all our lives. We love each other. Neither of us have dependents. So uh, I think we'll probably walk the last uh, the last few laps of our lives together. That's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, it's a great feeling. Yeah. She's a very good cook as well. But you know what's funny? When we were younger, we did always say, oh, it would be funny if we ended up living, living out our lives together because we'd been flatmates for years and it always got on very well. And we used to play this little game of fantasising what it would be like when we were old. And we would sort of phone each other up in the morning and go, good morning, good morning, what shall we do today? Do you fancy going to the farmer's market? That kind of nonsense. But actually, that's exactly what we do do when we're together now. So that's, <laughs> that's sort of arrived. And also, she's seen the best of me and she's seen the worst of me. Mm. And we're both still standing. So that, there aren't many people who haven't got the time to do that with anybody now, really. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good thing. And also we just have that thing, somebody could say something, we'd only just need to glance at each other and we're on the same wavelength and, uh, and that's good. She's a very good cook as well and that's very important to me. <laughs> well, what would happen if you met someone else though? Would they come too? <laughs> Isn't that odd? I can't imagine it. It's yeah. funny, one of the things I've found is if you are uh, newly widowed, mm. Um, and if your widowhood has come perhaps earlier than you, it's expected, lots of people want want to sort of fix you up with someone. So I've had a few people who have suggested candidates who I might want to, you know, go for dinner with. And lovely candidates, all of them, very happily have dinner with all of them. But I just can't imagine getting close to someone again mm. in the way I did with David. I can't. First of all, I can't imagine taking my clothes off in front of someone who's not a medical professional. Um, <laughs> uh, and just the whole getting to know you stuff. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, a friend of mine, another very close friend, said the other day, listen, you're 58. You sound like you're 98. Well, exactly. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, there's plenty of life yet to be lived. But a year into bereavement is no time at all, I think. No, it's quite interesting, actually, because... Um... I did some cat. I did some training for crews, and I think there's a statistic. It's really high for men within a year of bereavement of their partners that they repartner again, and for women, it's not like that. 
No, I think I do quite a lot of marriages. Of, and I think it's because men are very often hopeless at the domestic stuff, really. Just need someone to put the cat out and, <laughs> I don't know, you know, cook the tea or something. But I, I, I don't... No, I just can't imagine it happening. And also because... I don't know. I don't feel... I know David is gone. Um, but he's still very much in my life. And I don't think there's room for another person on those terms, certainly not at the moment. Well, people say that, don't they? They say that when they're married to someone, they can't compete with a dead person, right? Right. They're always going to be amazing. They can do no wrong. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Uh, David was a very difficult person and Mm. we had plenty of light and shade in our relationship. But I can't imagine having a serious relationship that, it wasn't like that, really. Mm. And also, the reason why I think it was sometimes so difficult was because we really loved each other. And that's not always a walk in the park. No, it certainly isn't. But that's what makes a good relationship, isn't it? It's still loving each other through knowing you're, you know, the true person that you are, right? Yeah. You're good, good and bad, and to be accepted for that good and bad. And I knew with David that there were times in our relationship where it was very tough, and also because he was ill for uh, quite some time before he died, that was pretty tough too, actually. But I, I knew that I would never balk from having to do what I what I had to do. And I think he knew that too. For a long time, I think he was quite perhaps nervous that I would, I would find it unendurable, but I never did. I found it the, the most of it I had to endure, but never unendurable. And then I kind of realised that what the point is, is that you, if you love someone, then love them. And all the other stuff is secondary. So if we would have a fight sometimes, or if I'd be frustrated, or if I think he was not taking care of his health properly, he was, he was a former medic, worst possible patients of all. Um, I would get angry with him sometimes. There was actually no point in doing that. It was just making the time we had together burdensome rather than a delight. So I just stopped doing it after a while and just thought, okay, I'm just going to love you. And, mm. and did. It was easy to love him, though. It wasn't hard to love at all. Well, thank God you did love like that. Yeah. Because that would have been a terrible regret, wouldn't it, afterwards, to think, actually, did I love him purely? But it sounded like you oh. really did. Oh, I, no, I really loved him. I didn't always love... I didn't always treat him as well as I could have done, and I have regrets about that. But, But I'm an imperfect human being and I get things wrong sometimes and I fuck things up sometimes and so did he but I would never have left him ever Mm. um what helped what helped you with your grieving and were there were there sort of did you feel their expectations of like what you were saying about people setting you up with someone like there were there expectations of how you should grieve and how you should you know, try and get over him? Because you, you don't ever get over someone, do you? No, you don't. No. Um, the hard thing actually was being a vicar because I'm not, you know, to, to, to lots of people, I'm the person who 
kind of knows what to do in situations like that. One of the reasons you'll find someone knows as a death dealer is that what people in those circumstances they often want is someone who knows what they're doing because they're extremely anxious and nervous and they're not, you know, it's a situation they're in that they find extremely difficult and haven't done before. And then when it's happening to you, uh, I mean, David died just before Christmas and I knew that I simply couldn't be in church at Christmas. It was too unbearable because the thought of somehow the child in the manger, and David absolutely loved Christmas, um, was, I just couldn't do it, couldn't face it. So I did my curate, took over, and I was off duty for the for the whole of Christmas. And that mm. was really good, because I couldn't have done it. Mm. Um, but, but being the vicar at Christmas was, I just, it was really hard. And also there was some, David died just before Christmas, and the funeral was after Christmas, uh, after New Year. And uh, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And there was quite a bit of media interest when David died. And some journalists started kind of asking people questions about him and wanting to, they fed up the undertaker. And, and I began to feel just a little bit vulnerable. And some friends took me in. So I was, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And then some friends of mine who live uh, nearby, um, well, actually, it's the Spencers, or Spencer, who live at Althorpe, you know. So they've got this house with a, with a high wall and security gates. And nobody knows better than Charles Spencer what it's like to lose someone in the glare of public attention. If you see yeah. I mean. So they were just fantastic. So I spent Christmas with them. And God knows what it must be like to them having this grief-stricken vicar wandering <laughs> around the house while they were trying to just open their presents and stuff. But they were really just so lovely and kind. They'd been very kind to, to us both when David was ill too. Um, but it was kind of odd because on Christmas Day, I went for a walk and found myself at the grave of Diana, who's buried on an island on the, uh, on the lake on the estate. And it was just very odd to find myself at the moment of uh, of my bereavement, standing looking at this monument to perhaps the most grieved person of our of our time, mm. and uh, and that was interesting. Why? And then, it... yeah, sorry. Why? Why was it interesting? I remember when Diana died, and I knew her a little bit because I didn't really know. I'd met her a few times because we'd been involved in the same charity. And like lots of people, her death came as a most you know, huge shock. And and I remember at the time seeing people react to it and thinking, oh, you're attaching your grief to this big grief, to the books of remembrance, you know. And I remember I was working for uh, Radio 4, I think it was at the time, and just interviewing people who were queuing up at St James's Palace to sign the books of condolence. And they were writing reams and reams and reams. And I was thinking, what's this about? And then I realised there was even a book of condolence at Tesco's in Kettering. And I was thinking, what's this about? <laughs> Um, but I think people were seeing in this event something that reflected their own needs and their own fears, perhaps their own pain. And so, and so that was a, a peg for lots of people to hang all their grief on too. So and I remember, I think, I'm embarrassed and ashamed to say so now, sort of feeling a bit superior about it and thinking, well, I would never do that. And then actually I completely get it now why you want the world to acknowledge your grief, what's happening to you. One of the hardest things is when the world doesn't do that. And one of the things I've learned, never get shirty with someone in a hospital car park because they may be dithering at the car park machine or they may be slow to leave their parking space in the car park 
but they might be having the worst day of their lives, so cut them some slack. Mm. And actually, generally, I think now it's just a rule in life. You don't know what's going on in someone's life, so cut them some slack, if you can. That's it, isn't it? It's just a way of looking at it with some compassion. Just going, you know, we don't know what's going on. We don't know why that... I mean, like sometimes someone's so grumpy to me and I think, why, why, why did that happen? I think it's because they've got stuff going in their li- on in their lives, and I'm not taking it personally. That yeah. you know, you're absolutely right. It's cutting people a bit of slack because it's not. It's not, life isn't easy, is it? No. Let's face it. And uh, yeah, and sometimes the people are the walking wounded, and you have to you have to understand it to give them a bit of space and understanding because you'll need it yourself one day. So good idea. The other thing is, is that you. You can't see grief. You can see someone who's got one leg, for instance, but with grief, it's invisible to everyone else. And also, people don't know what to say. And, and like you were saying yeah. earlier about how you want yeah. everyone to acknowledge your grief, but actually, lots yeah. of people don't, do they? Because they're scared to say the wrong thing. Yeah, it's odd that, isn't it? But I mean, we, we laugh about the Victorians and their sort of propriety and all that but they were very good at grief i think so all those rules of mourning that if you were a widow or a spouse or a child of someone who had died you would wear particular clothes that would signify where you were in the stage of mourning and it seemed rather elaborate and silly to me but actually i think they got it right but then they were of course they were used to death it was happening all around them all the time and because of that also i think they were able to talk about it and it's an irony i think I think it's an odd thing that people, I think, think themselves to be, you know, lots of people who don't have a faith of any kind at all, they think sometimes almost pride themselves on being able to stand on their own two feet and kind of face the tough realities of life without lapsing into the kind of cheap comfort of religious nonsense or something, not understanding that faith is challenge, not consolation primarily. Mm. Um but then, funnily enough, though they, they most often the people who are most euphemistic when it comes to death, and we'll talk about passing away. Everyone seems to say passed away now, and they're just or lost. Yeah, or or and you think you mean died, and I think we have to. Well, I think I have to. I don't want to be prescriptive for other people, but I think I think we need to get on terms with death again because it's the one thing we will all share. No matter who we are, where we are, our fortune, our misfortune, we're all going to get there in the end. Mm. And most of us are going to experience the loss of somebody dear to us soon. So we better get on terms with it, seems to me. Mm. And and that's part of what I do as a doula. We do a lot of preparation yeah. before people. You know, I could work with someone now and I could do their advanced care planning and, you know, look into wills and all that sort of stuff. So it starts getting people to think about these things and yeah. it's preparation that we need to do in life. And death is the one thing that we don't actually prepare for at all. Yeah. And it's such a mess at the end. It's so weird, isn't it? Because it's coming. And, and we sort of, sometimes we medicalise it. So we export it to a hospital. So somebody goes off to somewhere where they're plugged into machines and that takes care of things. Or sometimes it's just not, the embarrassment thing is funny, isn't it? <laughs> I bumped into, after Christmas, um, somebody I know a little bit in a shop, and he said, oh, he said, oh, I'm sorry to hear about Dave, and I said, thank you very much. He said, so how was Christmas? And I said, well, not great, actually. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was all embarrassed, but it was simply just a form of words, you know. That, yeah. Uh, and death is awkward and difficult, and it, it, 
it sort of threatens us and makes us anxious. The other thing about death, of course, is that people fear it and they think that it's contagious somehow. Mm. And so they want to keep a little bit of distance from it. And also, I think there's not quite... There's also a feeling of relief, I think, that if the angel of death has passed over your neighbourhood and stopped for someone else, not for you, Mm. then you might just breathe a sigh of relief, perhaps. It sounds to me like your friends were a massive help to you. Was talking publicly about it helpful? Um, Well, I mean, I I didn't really really know how not to, partly because I'm a vicar, and vicars, you know, our lives are all public in a way. We, when we have a private life, but somehow that's lived out on stage to a certain extent. And also because of social media, which has been my sort of, uh, you know, I've been very active on social media, of, of first because the BBC made me, because I work for them sometimes. And, but then I actually took to it and I realised that this was one way of kind of connecting to people, was mm. to people I wouldn't normally connect with was through social media. So I just carried on doing what I'd always done. But I think then I realised how mad I was and I stopped for a bit. So I had to disengage from it because I think I needed, a friend of mine said this, I I just said um, that I was coming on Facebook for a while and a friend of mine on Facebook said that's a good idea because you just need to be with the people in the room actually. And I think that was perceptive. The connection just needed human connection on a real level. Yeah, and also it's acquaintanceship on social media often. It's not most of the people you're friends with on social media are not really friends they're just you know friends on social media Mm. and they don't know you well enough and they perhaps don't have you know they they don't have you're not significant enough in their life and they're not significant enough in your life to make the necessary allowances and i just wanted to be with there's a bit where i it was before the funeral but after Christmas, and I went to stay with some friends, and I drove across a chunk of England, just calling in to see people who were connected with me and David as I went along. I hadn't planned it that way, but it just so happened that the route just so happened went past those places. So I just stopped and called in, and it was just really good to connect with mm, real people. Mm. Yeah, because it's really isolating grief, isn't it? Yeah, and especially, I mean, it's another thing that was an unexpectedly useful thing was lockdown. Mm. So David died at Christmas and then three months later, we were into lockdown. And a number of my friends were quite concerned about that, that I would be on my own um, dealing with grief while it was still pretty raw. And that would be difficult. But you know what? It was really good for me because I think the risk with me would be of just trying to do lots of things to to throw myself into work and various things. And that for me would be a way of not dealing with stuff. So Mm. I spent weeks on my own in the vicarage. Fortunately, it was that most beautiful spring I can remember. Had the dogs. We went for long walks every day. I went out on my bike until it got nicked, bastard. Um, And I watched the flowers come and the birds sing and the trees come into leaf. And there was something... Also, David was a brilliant gardener. And I saw the garden that he had planted the year before come to life. So what he'd planted all of a sudden bloomed. Mm. And every day there was something new and something of him. And that was that was lovely. But I think just being on my own, I needed to, I was perhaps, you know, you're like a, 
battle-scarred warrior and you need to go off and lick your wounds sometimes and bind up your bones and heal your bruises or something. And yeah, it's very brave to do that. I mean, you didn't have any choice. But to make, you know, if, if lockdown hadn't been forced upon you, like you say, you probably wouldn't have done that. And maybe that healing might not have started... I mean, that just, well, it's not even healing. It's like, it's just reflection, isn't it? And sitting with what's happened. Yeah, and I just needed to be in touch with that deep tectonic shift that's happening inside. And it's very easy to distract yourself from that. And I can remember there was a period of about a week when I had a just a bean bag out in the garden. And I'd work in the morning, I've written bits and stayed in touch with people and did all the stuff that vicars do during lockdown you know trying to connect with people but in the afternoon after lunch i'd just sit on the beanbag under the cherry tree in the garden and the dogs would come and sit at my feet and i would do nothing i never do that listen to the birds sing the two magpies nesting in a tree opposite i watch them come and go and then the bees came and the roses came and and the garden went boom. And mm-hmm. no cars, because nobody was driving then. No claims on my time. I switched the phone off. Put the screens away. And it was good. Sounds like it was very healing for you. I think it was, yeah. yeah. Did you um, Did you question your faith when he died? No. No. No, not at all. I knew that I wasn't going to be... I knew that I was damaged. So when David was dying in hospital, I went down to the chapel and I knelt in the chapel and I sort of said to God, I'm just not going to be functioning for a while, as you know. So um, I'll check in with you when I can. And uh, and I did. And, 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 I, and, I, and I, I mean, I, was diligent about prayer because that's a habit to me and habits can sometimes be, you know, salutary. So I kept up my habits, but there was, I was talking to someone the other day and they said, it's a bit like a bomb has gone off and I'm all over the place, bits of me are sort of flying through the air and it's all, and I can't function properly. So, um, just to bear with me for a bit. And fortunately, I'm part of a community of people. I have a wonderful parish and wonderful parishioners, and they just did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And and I just and I knew that I was completely enfolded in their in their love and care. And and that was really good. It's mm, amazing, isn't it? And that you can't all you know, vicars like to think of ourselves as heroes, is that we are the ones who will kind of keep on going and lead the way through the deserts and across the rivers and over the mountains and everything. But you can't always do that. Sometimes you're just basically completely fucked up mm. and other people have to do that for you. And you must learn to let them. And it's great that you've got the humility to say that. And when you know your position is one that people look up to you, but to say, do you know what? I'm actually feeling really vulnerable and I can be vulnerable and I can show that I'm vulnerable and and that's me. I'm not some demi-god vicar. <laughs> I don't think they ever thought, they never thought that. But I, I think it was within me. I think it was a, a sort of 
it was a sort of fiction within me that I was, you know, unflappable and uh, and in control of things, and and I and I just had to give that up, and that was good. Yeah. Now coming up to the the the, the art site, the first anniversary of David's death, and I know that, and it's only right and probably this is my grief, and I've been very conscious in the past when I've been dealing with grieving people is that you can't trespass on somebody else's grief; it's theirs. And don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't, I don't, I mean, part of me would love people to be absolutely grief stricken as I am still, because I feel that would be a nice tribute to David and also a consideration of my feelings. But really, I don't think that at all. They, you know, they've got their lives to lead and I have my life to lead and it'll, and I'm still limping along, but uh, that's how it is. And you have to accept realities, don't you? Um, and then I have my, my kind of inner circle of friends have been, I had a friend, uh, who lives in Scotland, who came down actually only a couple of weeks ago and completely reorganised my study. And, and my <laughs> brother-in-law... Oh, he's a wonderful friend. And my brother-in-law, Mark, David's brother, who's terrific, he came down and emptied the garage single-handed. I said pathetically, Mark, do you want some help? And he took one look at me and he said, I don't think that's necessary. Go and sit down. So he did it all single-handedly, which was, which was fantastic of him. And then we had David's mum and dad came down and uh, and his other brother and his wife came to stay and we and that was good. Well, I mean, it, just going back to, to, to death as, as something that's been very much in your life, what, how has your sort of relationship to death changed over the years? And like, what, what is it? What's your relationship to death like now? Well, I think... Hmm. When I was younger, I think it had a sort of dark glamour in a way. Mm. And I was sort of obsessed with existentialist literature and the sort of art of people like Damien Hirst, who I think was fascinated by death in the way that only a young person can be. As you get older, you realise that it's not a theoretical exercise at all, but it is something which uh, is coming towards you. And also has already arrived with the people around you. So you stop dealing with it as a sort of, you know, something you kind of imagine and it becomes a reality. Um, and then if you're a vicar, of course, you get more of it sooner than most people do, which is why there's great banter between medics and clergy and funeral directors, because when you know they're split, anyone who, who's dealing daily in death and bereavement, you develop a certain black humour mm. to make that, uh, bearable. I sometimes wish I hadn't. I'd had a bit longer before I, before I became expert. Do you know what I mean? That I kind of sometimes look back to when I was young, and it was just sort of theoretical. Um, and I, and uh, once that's gone, it doesn't come. It doesn't come back. Mm. So, but I also know. You know, I'm a Christian, and I also know that. Death leads to the cross, and we look at the cross every Lent, every Easter, every Good Friday, and beyond it, all of a sudden, you pass through into this new territory that you didn't know was there, and the light shines and the dawn comes up, and all of a sudden, something miraculous and transformed happens. So I don't look at death and think it's the last frontier. Mm. I don't think it's the end. I think it's a place of transformation it's a threshold and that what was good in this life and gave us our joy 
and our richness and our individuality. And I think that carries on. Mm. But in a way that's once and for all kind of saved from what plagues us and hurts us and damages us and diminishes us in this life. And are you talking about a sort of energy or essence of or soul or do you mean... I think mean... it's soul, I think it's us, but yeah. us kind of rescued for eternity where we live in the eternal light of God and mm. no one other... I mean, I, I, I think I, David and I will be together again in a place beyond this place where, um, you know, there are no tears or there's no darkness and it'll be dazzling and wonderful and we will dance all day and all night not get tired and not look stupid (laughs) (laughs) and does that give you comfort to think that in a way it's a mixture of feelings partly it does but also it makes me miss him because i quite like dancing with him in this life we used to do a little dance around the kitchen sometimes and uh, i miss our little dances around the kitchen yeah (laughs) I have a David playlist. I have two David playlists. One is a playlist that I have on around the house, which is just music that he really liked. And and then I have another playlist for when I'm feeling particularly sorrowful, which is music that touches me very deeply and reminds me of him. But that's not stuff I I would want to share with anybody else. You know, that's, Mm. that's me and him. Oh, um, well, I've I've got a, a fun question now. Hurrah! <laughs> Hurrah! <laughs> I mean, music's been a huge part of your life, even before you were in a band. So with that in mind, I was going to ask you, what piece of music would you have played at your funeral? Somebody asked me that and I said, Wagner's Ring Cycle, because it's mm-hmm. 15 hours long. But they said that would probably be a bit impractical. <laughs> Um, there's pieces of so much, so much music I love, but there's a piece I particularly like at the moment, which is the Libertango. So it's a tango for accordion. One of the things I've done in lockdown is learn the accordion because I've always wanted to. And a parishioner died and his widow gave me his accordion. So I've had Zoom lessons and uh, I'm just now beginning to be able to kind of manage a tango. So this is, it's called the Libertango. And I absolutely love it, so I would have that. That sounds great. (laughs) Lovely. Thank you. For more information about Richard's work, please go to richardcoles.com. And as ever, I'd be so grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe to this podcast.